0: This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. As the coronavirus pandemic fully engulfed
1: the country back in April, the U.S. economy shed more than 20 million jobs and the unemployment rate shot up to 14.7%. The April jobs report that was released today from the Labor Department was every bit as ugly as Harvard economist Megan Greene expected. And so we've asked her back today. Uh, The devastation is laid plain. There's a clamor now for states to reopen to try to get the economy moving again. Is this a good idea?
2: So I actually think the answer to that lies more in epidemiology than it does in economics. And if you look at the numbers, you know, the number of new cases in many states are still increasing. And so while I understand the impulse to try to reopen the economy and get activity going so some of these firms that were really healthy beforehand can go back to doing business, Um, I do think it could actually um, be self-defeating, ultimately. So if we reopen too early and there's a new spike in cases and we all have to lock back down again, I think if we end up reopening too early and then shutting back down and reopening and shutting back down, that will really hurt confidence, and so it will take even longer for people to go back um, and behave, you know, in some semblance of normal to create demand to really kickstart the economy.
1: And yet, we're now up to what 44 states that have moved to ease restrictions are we at the point where economists are asking the same question that Dr. Fauci is asking in how much disease and death we're willing to tolerate?
2: I mean, I think that's sort of baked into a decision to open back up when new cases are already rising, right? Um, and it is a really kind of macabre calculation. what What's the value of a human life? And I'm not really sure how you make that. You know, there are other ways for us to go back to normal that are uh, much cheaper and faster, actually, than having these intermittent shutdowns. Um, one way is to test regularly. So test people every two weeks. And this is a proposal that's been put forth by Paul Romer. Um, The problem with that is that it would require, you know, conducting about 150 million tests a week. And right now we can hardly conduct 1 million tests in a week in the U.S. And so we put them in on the moon. So how can we not figure out testing? Um, It it seems kind of absurd. You
1: mentioned putting someone on the moon. Wouldn't a vaccine be the ultimate moonshot to give people the confidence needed to go back outside and get back to work?
2: So a vaccine or, you know, treatment of this virus would be a game changer because, again, then we, you know, those of us concerned about getting this disease would feel confident that actually, you know, we we could get over it or, you know, with a vaccine, we could avoid it altogether. Um, the problem is we just don't know that much about the disease yet, so we don't know enough about immunity once you've had it. And the fastest vaccine that we've ever generated took four years it was for the months in the 1950s so we've made a lot of technological um, you know improvements since then but it, it could take a while so yes that is the silver bullet it's the only silver bullet a vaccine or a cure.
1: Megan Green joining us once again from Harvard's Kennedy School. Hospitals in New York that have become effectively coronavirus wards are now starting to transform back toward their regular flow of care. Dr. David Rich president of Mount Sinai Hospital is with us. Even at peak COVID, I know your hospital was still accepting oncology patients and moms giving birth. But were you ever concerned people were putting off critical care because either they were afraid to come to the hospital or the messaging was stay away?
3: Whatever the messaging was, the data in New York City speaks to that because the number of deaths at home uh, was dramatically higher than in a normal period and that speaks to individuals with non-COVID diseases, such as cardiovascular disease or oncology or diabetes, hypertension, others who would have um, uh, complications that would normally uh, call 911 or get to emergency rooms on their own, they clearly stopped coming. And over the past uh, two weeks or so, our emergency department is seeing historically low levels of daily registrations uh, once the peak of the COVID crisis passed, uh, which, again, is indirect evidence that people are very afraid of hospitals because of the COVID crisis.
1: I know there's messaging on the Mount Sinai website. How else do you address this?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, so, Aaron, we, uh, we work carefully with marketing communications to make sure the important messaging was there. Uh, also, um, uh, we communicate with uh, government officials on a regular basis. And one of the other things that we're working on, uh, which I believe is a consensus among all the major health systems in New York, is that uh, it is probably time to pull back on the visitor restrictions uh, that exist within the health systems right now. For example, uh, uh, right now for inpatients, No visitors are allowed unless it's for someone with special needs, such as a patient with dementia or someone uh, at uh, very close to end of life or in pediatric settings uh, and in labor and delivery. So when you take out those um, exclusions that the governor put into the executive order banning a visitation within hospitals it's really sort of a, a mixed message when we say to a patient okay you do have this urgent surgery you need to have it's safe for you to come to the hospital and by the way Aaron parenthetically it is safe when we uh, say to the patients you can come but you can't bring someone to support you in the hospital during that stay it, it's just not a consistent message and so I think that uh, we uh, we're advocating that for outside of the strict isolation that we have in the COVID units, that in the majority of the hospital now that is non-COVID, that we believe that an appropriate visitation policy makes sense.
1: Is your sense that, that a transition is, is really in the offing here now?
3: Well, the transition is already occurring in that the number of urgent surgical cases uh, reached a, a nadir, a low point, during the peak of the crisis uh, because, frankly, the resources were needed elsewhere at that moment in time. But as the crisis began slowly to come down from the peak, uh, those resources have been restored and the number of urgent cases are coming up.
1: Dr. David Rich, the president of Mount Sinai Hospital. And, of course, the hospital system is still treating COVID patients. And for some of them, doctors are using a special technique. Dr. Ettore Volcano is here from Mount Sinai. Why are you rolling patients onto
4: their stomachs? This has been shown to improve oxygenation and improve the respiratory mechanics of the patient, which ultimately lead to a better function of the lungs. What's the correlation there? Imagine your, your lungs almost starting to get flooded okay, with water. And this water prevents the oxygen that you breathe in to be transferred to the little capillaries inside the lungs. In order for this oxygen exchange to happen, there cannot be anything really surrounding these capillaries that prevents the oxygen from uh, flowing. And so what the proning does is it physically mobilizes water from one side of the lungs to the other. And by flipping the patients from prone to supine and vice versa, uh, usually every uh, 16 hours, uh, we're really able to optimize the amount of lung volume that the oxygen can exploit to ultimately reach the blood.
1: So this is helping oxygen flow.
4: Rather than oxygen flow, because the oxygen of, by oxygen flow, as I interpret it, is having the actual air getting into the lungs. And we're not having problems sending the air into the lungs, especially in patients that have a ventilator. The problem is once the oxygen is in the lungs, instead of being absorbed by the lungs, it just stays there and then it gets expelled. And so the proning actually works on this.
1: Could this delay the need for a ventilator in some patients?
4: Absolutely, yes. So first, when we, we started doing this in patients that already were on a ventilator. But then, we, you know, we all started thinking in the medical community, well, why don't we use, try to use this even prophylactically? And so we started proning patients that uh, were not in acute respiratory distress, and we noticed uh, substantial improvements in their oxygen uh, levels in the blood. Many of them did not go on to needing a ventilator. Now, is it the result of us proning? It's hard to know in retrospect, but we did definitely see an almost immediate improvement of the oxygenation as soon as the patient was flipped over.
1: Fascinating stuff. Dr. Vittorio Volcano at Mount Sinai. He wanted us to know that this procedure requires a team of at least five to make sure it's done right. More about this ongoing pandemic and what we're learning about the virus from our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special.
0: You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach.
5: With me now is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we have been talking over these past several weeks about obesity as a risk factor for COVID-19. What do we know about the background medical risks of that population? Well,
6: listen, this is a special population. And as we learn more about COVID-19 and the particular groups that it affects differently People with obesity are one of those groups that deserves special attention. So if you do a deep dive, number one, what we know that obesity is a complex chronic disease. It is absolutely not due to a lack of dedication or discipline or commitment, um, Just in terms of numbers, 42% of the U.S. population adults qualify as living with obesity, and we know that just being obese increases the risk of infection, general inflammation, and in terms of our respiratory function, can potentially impair
5: ventilation. And we should mention, you are board certified in obesity medicine, so in terms of people With COVID-19, what are some of the theories about why those who are obese are at an increased risk? Well,
6: one of the things we're looking at right now is amongst populations where there are more young people living with obesity. Can that partially explain the increase in numbers of hospitalizations and deaths that we're seeing? We also are always learning more about the stigma and bias potentially faced potentially by people with obesity unfortunately, on the part of many medical professionals. And we also are looking at whether or not that stigma or bias will make people with obesity less likely to seek medical attention for COVID-19 or for any other condition.
5: All right. We always talk about what we don't know. What don't we know about the connection between obesity and COVID-19? Well,
6: one of the things that's being looked at right now is what is the role of hormonally active adipose tissue in the association with COVID-19 disease? And then we're going to be looking at should people with obesity be screened or tested differently, maybe more aggressively? And as we learn more about therapies and treatments, will there be tailored treatments for people with obesity if they get moderately or severely ill with COVID-19? All of that's still under research. All right,
5: Dr. Jen, you'll be back in yep. just a few. So. We're looking forward to that. In the meantime, <laughs> we turn now to ABC's Rachel Scott, who's in Washington, D.C., with all of the latest headlines for us. Hey,
7: Amy, good to be with you on this Friday. Let's get right to the stories we are working on. And we start with the devastating jobs report, the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression, hitting 14.7 percent in April with more than 20 million jobs lost in the coronavirus lockdowns. Not only the highest unemployment rate number ever recorded, but also the biggest month-to-month jump. And a new ABC News Ipsos poll shows nearly two-thirds of Americans are resistant to reopening the country right now, most indicating loss of lives is worse than the economic toll. And for the second week in a row, 57 percent of Americans disapprove of President Trump's handling of the crisis. And now to temperature screenings on the tarmac for Frontier passengers and crew. Beginning June 1st, anyone with a temperature over 100.4 degrees will not be able to board Frontier, the first U.S. airline to do this, and their passenger face mask rule goes into effect tomorrow. Bloomberg and Reuters reporting tickets for Shanghai Disney's first day and first weekend back sold out within minutes. The park will reopen at one-third capacity with special safety measures in place on May 11th. Disney, of course, is the parent company of ABC
5: News. Amy? Thank you so much, Rachel. Well, the unofficial start to summer is just two weeks away, but this Memorial Day weekend will be different, of course, than in years past. The mayor of Ocean City, Maryland, Rick Meehan, joins us now to tell us all about how his beach town plans to tackle the new normal. So thanks for being with us. We certainly appreciate it, Mayor. We know your beach and boardwalk will officially reopen to the public tomorrow but you also know that some of your residents there say they're concerned about non-residents having access. Your declaration does not supersede the governor's stay-at-home order, but you say your police will not be restricting visitors. What can people expect?
8: Well, thank you, Amy. We closed our beaches on March 22nd, and they've only been open to local residents. And what we've seen up there is that And I've gone up there as the residents are complying they're up there they're social distancing some of them are wearing masks they're avoiding crowds of more than six to ten people and they're really going out of their way to be courteous to others this gave us the encouragement to take that next step which is to go ahead and open uh, the beaches and boardwalk and that'll basically for be for people that live in the surrounding areas because this does not supersede the Governor Hogan's mm-hmm. stay-at-home order or the stay-at-home orders orders in other states around us. So we're looking at this as what you might term a soft opening. Uh, we're hoping that as the crowds begin to build up, which will happen as you get closer to the summer, we'll have an opportunity to really observe what the patterns are, what additional measures we need to take, and what we need to do to keep everybody safe when they're up on the beach in the boardwalk. But we are not stopping people. Uh, You know, the police department isn't doing that. They're not doing that throughout the state. So what we're doing is we're relying on people to do the right thing. And so far, most people we've seen on Beach and Boardwalk have complied and are doing the right thing.
5: You mentioned neighboring states, surrounding states. Delaware, with its beach towns, has seen a surge in COVID-19 cases. You said you're not going to require those visiting your beaches to wear masks. Why is that?
8: Well, there's not a state law that mandates wearing masks in public areas, however, we are going to encourage people to wear masks on the beach and on the boardwalk. Social distancing is the key. We have some of the widest beaches on the East Coast, so we have a lot of room for people to spread out, and we're anticipating that they're going to do just that. Um, again, people are going to have to do the right thing, take responsibility for their own actions, be courteous to others around them, and keep everybody safe. This is a transition step for us, and we believe that this is the best way as we move forward uh, in getting closer to the warmer weather and the hotter season and the busier times.
5: Yeah, and transitioning to reopening. We know Ocean City is one of the state's most popular summer destinations. So do you see businesses there on the boardwalk reopening in time for Memorial Day weekend? And how are you helping those struggling businesses right now?
8: Yes, that's, that's a question. And right now, although we're opening the right-of-ways on the beach and boardwalk, the boardwalk shops are not open. The amusements are not open. The only thing that will be open are a few of the restaurants that do carry out. So really, it's just for getting out and exercising and being able to be outdoors and spend a little time, which is really good for your health in the outside. But You know, we're hoping to work with the governor as he moves forward with his Maryland strong roadmap to recovery. I think Governor Hogan's done a terrific job in the state of Maryland getting us to where we are today. And we plan to continue to work with him as he again moves forward with stage one, stage two, and starts to help us and help the state get businesses back open.
5: All right. Well, we certainly are wishing you the best in all of your efforts. Ocean City Mayor Rick Meehan, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Amy. Now, our shout out to nurses around the country. And today, the Louisiana critical care nurse facing the pandemic on a daily basis, forced to FaceTime with his wife and colleagues as his brand new son comes into the world.
9: Hi, my name is James Bamber. I'm a critical care nurse. I've been a critical care nurse for 10 years now. Beginning of the year, uh, work was just like it has been over the last eight years now a lot has changed. It starts as soon as I come in the hospital. I'm in my street clothes. I have to get my temperature checked. Uh, If I pass that temperature check, then I get to go ahead and go to the clean scrub station. I go ahead and get a report on my patients. But before I can go see them, it's a two or three minute process of donning the uh, personal protective equipment. That involves uh, putting on a gown first. Uh, Then I put two pairs of gloves on. I follow that with putting my goggles on. Then I put a uh, respirator on and then a face shield of some sort. I'm married to my wonderful wife. I have four children, Matthew, William, my beautiful girl, Grace, and Andrew. When it came time for Andrew to be born, the original plan was for me to stay at my sister's house and get updates on the delivery. I got a FaceTime notification on my phone. One of the nurses was trying to FaceTime me so I could see the whole thing. And so I picked up and I mean, it was just a beautiful experience being able to do that. This pandemic has shown me that everyone is a hero, starting with the truck drivers who deliver all of the supplies to the hospitals. Of course, the uh, frontline healthcare workers that are taking care of all the patients. And then finally, the uh, people that are staying at home and uh, abiding by the stay-at-home orders, which has gotta be a very tough thing to do, but they're also doing their part to stop the spread of this terrible virus.
5: Oh, he's even a humble hero. We want to thank James Bamber for his service and, of course, congratulate him and his wife on the beautiful new addition to their family. Well, coming up next right here on What You Need to Know, medical questions asked and answered by our Dr. Jen Ashton, and then a religious leader's message of hope on this Faith Friday. We'll be right back.
0: This ABC News special continues after this.
10: Life feels more stressful these days. Stores are empty. Travel is on pause. Work is uncertain. With social distancing, we need support now more than ever. Talkspace Online Therapy gives you the support you deserve on a schedule that works for you. We all need to talk through life's challenges. Talkspace offers the support we deserve at a price we can afford. Match with your perfect therapist and get $100 off your first month with promo code CALM. Sign up at Talkspace.com or download the app. Don't forget to use promo code CALM for $100 off your first month.
11: There's
0: not a person in America who hasn't been impacted in some way by the coronavirus pandemic. But in every community, there are pockets of people who are suiting up every day.
2: This is
1: my Monday.
0: It's the last day of a seven-day stretch. These are America's essential workers, the people who are keeping our world moving. I'm
7: on my way to drop off a bag of produce for one of our tenants.
0: And now, in a new podcast from ABC News, you're going to hear from them. their own words.
7: But there's always a risk that I could bring this home to my kids or my husband or my parents.
0: This is The Essentials Inside the Curve. Listen on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19 what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach.
5: Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now, and we'll get straight to the first question. My elderly mother, who is at risk of contracting COVID-19, has been quarantined since March. I have been quarantined as well, except for essential shopping, and I have not seen her since. Is it safe to visit her. This is such a big question as we approach this weekend. And
6: I'm going through it too with my mom, but the key word in that question is except, except for a little trip to the grocery store, except for X, Y, or Z. The fact of the matter is there is no such thing as zero risk. Yes, you can take steps to lower risk. So for example, if it's nice weather outside for Mother's Day, seeing someone outside very far away is better than being inside a closed space. But again, you always have to ask yourself the what ifs and if that happens, is it
5: worth it? And everyone has to make that decision for themselves. That makes sense. You gotta weigh those risks and benefits. All right, next question. My friend rescheduled her wedding to September due to the pandemic. If crowds are allowed to gather again, what are the extra safety precautions to take to ensure safety for myself and for the other guests? This is another big one so yep. many people are asking. And
6: me. I'm always saying I am not a wedding consultant, but I have gotten this question several times. My personal answer would be to do a very intimate Wedding just the two people and then have a big wedding down the road when it's really safer to do so. But there are, of course, ways to lower risk. Again, you can space out seating, you can do away with buffets, you can not have a receiving line, dance floor could be made bigger, et cetera, et cetera. But
5: again, no such thing as zero risk. Right. All right. This next question has been very controversial. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this. My, my father's a microbiologist. He's always told me not to wear gloves. Uh, and so, do gloves do more harm than good? at the grocery store.
6: Okay, well, I'm trained surgically, so I see gloves differently as a surgeon in a sterile environment. Yes, there are some settings where, sure, if you're handling food as a food service worker, yeah, you might want to wear gloves, but for the average person, My answer would be like your microbiologist. Dad, no. If you put on gloves, people a lot of times will get a false sense of security. There's a principle called cross-contamination. So they're at the grocery store, and they're picking up this grapefruit, and then they're grabbing their keys, and then they decline a call on their cell phone, and then they can't see the price on something, so they put on their glasses. All of these things are now contaminated with their dirty gloves. So you cannot put yourself in a plastic bubble. That's just not reality. Right. We can't live in a sterile environment. Hand washing, whether you're doing it at the store, before the store, after the store, still has to occur. And it is the best way to reduce your chances of getting sick. You're more aware that you
5: need to wash your hands or what you're touching when you don't have gloves on.
6: That cross-contamination issue is a real issue. And and people are, you know, it does seem like this would be common sense,
5: but science just doesn't bear that out. I think it's very important that you spelled that out for everyone. People feel strongly about it, but that's... You're the doctor. All right, next question. Could you explain how many... Llamas. Llamas. Wait, I'm I'm sorry. I paused. (laughs) Uh, Okay, how many llamas, how llamas may help in the fight against coronavirus? I'm sorry. Yeah, Uh, I was not prepared for that. No, I know.
6: Nor was I when I started to do the deep dive research into this. So apparently it is all traced back to a particular llama named winter. And this was just published in the scientific journal Cell. Really, really interesting. Llamas like camels, like alpacas, that's that whole species has a different antibody system than humans. They actually have two types of antibodies where we generally only have one form. And their antibodies, one of their types, is smaller. So there's a theory that it can get into the nooks and crannies on the surface of the coronavirus, those little spikes, and may provide some clues to immunity and protection. They've seen this with SARS. They've seen it with MERS. Now they are studying it with this one llama wow. named Winter uh, for coronavirus. So, again, our animal friends helping us out. That is amazing. Yeah, we'll all be right. staying on Dr. it. I think Jen, it's super interesting. Yes.
5: We'll need a follow-up. Oh, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and you can submit your questions. If they're about llamas, we can answer them. Dr. Jen, she will take those questions on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, it is Faith Friday here at ABC, and the impacts of this pandemic can be felt across all religions. Leaders at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, formerly known as the Mormon Church, called for the return of missionaries abroad and closed all all churches. Joining me now to talk more about how he is guiding his ward during this time is Bishop John Preet. And Bishop Preet, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we appreciate your time. And we know that a church is so much more than just a place of worship. It can also be a schooling center and a social resource for a lot of people. So how do you replace all of that in these times?
11: Well, thank you for having me, Amy. And I think you're exactly right. I'm This is, I think one of the things we need to acknowledge is that this is really hard on our members. We have members who are grieving, who are worried about their jobs, and candidly who are suffering from cabin fever um, in small apartments. And it's particularly difficult because members would typically come together on Sundays to sort of rejuvenate their spirits, and we can't do that. But like other churches, we've, we've held virtual services over video conference, but I think for us, the key has been that Our services are being led by individual regular rank and file members who are sharing their stories of faith and are expressing their belief in God. This past Sunday, we heard a very powerful um, testimony from an individual who's a frontline medical worker who was talking about how she has comforted individuals who are sick with coronavirus who can't be with their family members in their last moments. Mm. And she talked about how that had brought her closer to God. Um, This past Sunday, we also heard from a 96-year-old member of our community who hasn't been able to come to church physically in years due to health problems, but who inspired us with her own expression of faith. So these have all been, um, you know, we sort of make the most of the moment. And I think some of this virtual experience has actually been a positive.
5: As some of these COVID restrictions begin to ease, I'm curious how you plan on reintegrating church worship and activities.
11: It's a really good question. Look, I think we'll do it carefully. I don't know that all of our plans are set. You know, the health and safety of our members is is the highest priority. But as one initial signal, the church just announced yesterday that uh, we will be opening temples in a phased approach. And I suspect that carefulness And the health and safety of our members will guide all future decisions.
5: Before we let you go, we're hoping you could give us a message of hope as we head into this weekend.
11: Well, look, I think our, our bedrock faith and belief in God compels us to hope for a better day. And I really do think that that's coming. I think we can believe that this will pass, that the tomorrow that we're aspiring for will come. We can find peace in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we should cling to our faith for those who haven't been as active in their faith or in their gospel study or in prayer. Bring that back into your life. Bring a full measure of that back into your life, and you'll be so glad you did. And I think that's the message of hope, that we will get through this together.
5: Bishop Preet, thank you so much for being with us today. We wish you the very best.
11: My, my pleasure. Thank you. This
0: ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
5: Disney's epic sing-along special is coming back this weekend, just in time for Mother's Day. So get ready to belt out your favorite Disney songs with more of your favorite celebrities. And here to give us a special preview of what to expect is ABC's very own singing sensation, Kiki Palmer. And Kiki, I'm so excited. My daughters and I sang along. Uh, we're going to be doing it again this Sunday, so it's going to be another great family event. Tell us what we're going to see on Sunday night.
7: Oh, you're going to see so many amazing people singing along. Same thing with their family, friends, the rest of the Disney fam. I'm actually going to be doing Zero to Hero from Hercules with Dancing with the Stars, all the, all the Dancing with the Stars theme. So it's just going to be a lot of fun, like you said, something we all can enjoy together.
5: Oh, my gosh. Hercules is one of our favorites. And we know like you have just the right combination for this performance. I know it. Zero to Hero. Are you going to bring it with a special Kiki twist? <laughs> yes, I
7: think there's like going to be something fun that everybody will appreciate at the end that goes all inside with Mother's Day as well, because it's going to be Mother's Day as well. So happy early Mother's Day to all the mothers out there.
5: Oh, thank you very much. And I know you played a Disney princess before. This isn't your first rodeo. You were Cinderella. <laughs> yes. You were Cinderella on Broadway. So when are we going to see you voice a character for an animated movie? Because I think that should be next.
7: Oh, my gosh. I would live for that. I love doing animation. I love Disney. I love singing and acting. So let's go.
5: Thank you so much for being with us, Kiki. Can't wait to see you in person. Thank you. Can't wait to see you, too. The ongoing pandemic has touched nearly all aspects of our lives, including our food chain. Meat production is down substantially due to coronavirus outbreaks at processing plants, leading to growing concern over the nation's supply. Consumer Reports just published information on where to get meat during this pandemic. So joining us now is Consumer Reports investigative reporter Rachel Peachman. Rachel, thanks for being with us. And so when we talk about the vulnerability of the meat supply chain, What does this mean for consumers? What can we expect to see and find at the grocery stores?
12: Sure. Well, consumers are experiencing uh, limits on their meat purchasing options and perhaps some increases in price simply because there's a bottleneck at the meat processing plants where there have been severe COVID-19 outbreaks. So while there is plenty of meat on the farm. Animals are there. There's this bottleneck at the processing plants that isn't helping us get the meat to the grocery stores where people are trying to buy it.
5: Yeah, Rachel, we've heard a lot about beef being one of those meats specifically uh, that may be difficult to find. Will all meat products
12: be affected? At this point, um, all meat products seem to be affected. Production in general of meat is down about 35 percent right now. But uh, I want to make clear that we also have supply in cold storage at this point. We've got hundreds of millions of uh, pounds of pork, poultry and beef. So it's not that you won't be able to get any meat. It's just that your options may be limited.
5: All right. And you have to limit how much you actually bring home to from the grocery store. How long do you foresee this meat supply being impacted like this?
12: Well, it really depends on what happens at the meat processing plants. Most important is to keep the workers there safe and healthy. Uh, If the meat processing plants don't have safety protocols in place, then the meat production could slow even further. So it's most important to open up safely and scale up in a way that allows workers to stay safe and produce meat in in a way that uh, keeps production going. So it's hard to say how long this will last, uh, but government officials are working very hard to divert supply to places that need it. So, for example, when there is excess on the farm or perhaps waste on the farm, they are working to divert that to food banks and nutrition assistant programs and and consumers that, that need that.
5: All right. How about just giving us some quick tips for those of us who may be having a hard time finding meat at the supermarket? I know it can vary based on the day of the week I go to the supermarket. What can we do as consumers?
12: Absolutely. Well, this would be a great time to seek out your local farmer. Uh, smaller local farmers have been able to be really resilient and pivot. And instead of selling wholesale to restaurants or other bigger institutions, they are now offering options to consumers. So uh, you might want to look at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, which has a fantastic link uh, where you can go state by state and see where a local farm may be offering Uh, you know, consumer options. So you can find that also at cr.org backslash meat supply. We link to that resource there. So local farmers are a great resource. We also could simply look to other sources of protein. Um, There's lots of great ways to get protein and Americans tend to eat more meat than is actually, you know, great for our health. So, you know, beans, nuts, soy, uh, veggie burgers, these are all great ways to get protein. We're not going to have no other food to eat.
5: That's right. Good to remember. Rachel Peachman, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
12: Thank you for having me.
5: And still ahead here, if you're one of the millions of newly unemployed striking out on benefits, our next guest has some key steps for you. We're back in a moment.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You are listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
5: Over 33 million Americans have filed for unemployment insurance since this pandemic began. It is a historic number that just months ago seemed unthinkable. Well, now many individuals who qualify for that assistance are reporting issues with the unemployment filing process. In fact, some say they still have yet to receive any benefits at all. So here to address some of the biggest questions regarding unemployment is the National Employment Law Project senior policy analyst, Michelle Evermore. Michelle, thanks for being with us. And the big question is, what can people do who filed for the unemployment but haven't received any benefits?
13: Hi, thank you. Although it is tempting to want to call and check in, if everyone does that, processing times will be slower for everyone. However, if you applied online in most states, you can check back in through the benefits portal you used to apply. No news may be good news. Many states are not sending out denials for people who do not qualify for regular unemployment insurance, but are likely to qualify for the new pandemic benefit.
5: I know you're hearing from a lot of people out there. So what are some of the other frustrations you're seeing for those who are filing for unemployment right now? What advice can you give them?
13: Um, Number one, if you are denied, do not panic. You may be eligible for the new pandemic unemployment assistance that has just been rolled out in many states. That's a program that's parallel to regular unemployment insurance for people who don't qualify for regular UI. But because they were um, self-employed, independent contractors, they did not meet earnings requirements or have a COVID reason to stay home, they may be able to qualify people can also appeal for regular unemployment insurance benefits. And Michelle, I mean,
5: the number of people filing for unemployment at the same time is unprecedented. So is there any chance that states could
13: run out of funds? And if so, what would happen? Most states are probably going to spend all of their unemployment trust fund dollars. That's because states are considered to be solvent if they have enough money on hand to pay benefits in an average recession year. No one expected to go from uh, 3.5 unemployment to 33 million new claims in two months. This is a spike like we haven't seen since the program's inception in 1935. If the state trust fund runs out, you are still entitled to a benefit. The state has to pay you. You've Mm -hmm. earned the benefit. Um, So the state will have to borrow money, usually from the federal government.
5: All right, And, and any thoughts on what might happen as more states start to reopen local businesses?
13: Yes, I'm concerned because while workers cannot refuse suitable work and continue to receive unemployment insurance, unsafe work doesn't, shouldn't count as suitable work. During normal times, unemployment insurance is meant, people att- meant to keep people attached to the workforce. But if workers are, un- are, are being asked to perform unsafe work, they should demand a safe work environment. Um, in most states, workers have good cause to stop going in if their job is a threat to their health.
5: All right. That is very important information that everyone out there should remember. Michelle Evermore, thank you so much for that advice. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you. That's what you need to know for this week. We're going to see you again on Monday. I'm Amy Robach in New York for Dr. Jen Ashton and all of us here. Happy Mother's Day. Please stay well, stay safe and have a great weekend.
0: ABC News, honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice.
10: A crisis like this can become a breeding ground for anxiety. Without the stability of our normal routine, the mind fills with the worst-case scenarios, what-ifs, and worries. If you're feeling anxious or overwhelmed, you're not alone. During Mental Health Awareness Month, Talkspace is more committed than ever to helping you find support. Talkspace Online Therapy gives you 24-7 access to a licensed therapist from the comfort and safety of your own home. They have thousands of therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, and relationship issues, so you're sure to match with one who meets your needs and preferences. Once you're matched, you can start messaging with your therapist the very same day, as often as you need, anytime, from any device. Don't struggle alone. Let Talkspace help you build a dedicated support system so you can feel healthier and more empowered. Match with your therapist today and get $100 off your first month with promo code CALM. Sign up at Talkspace.com or download the app. That's Talkspace.com, promo code C-A-L-M.